You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Sarah Fritch, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You're the president of Schoolhouse. You know, I came across Schoolhouse a few years ago. I was looking for doorknobs <laughs> and I found you. And you have a lot of a great selection of doorknobs at schoolhouse.com <laughs> if people want to look into that. But tell people how, um, how do you describe Schoolhouse these days? Uh, well, I'm glad you found us. And we do have a lot of doorknobs. We have more than doorknobs. Schoolhouse is a vertically integrated lighting and lifestyle company. Uh, we're committed to the preservation of American manufacturing, thoughtful living, purposeful design. And we're aiming to create the next generation of heirlooms. So we're in year 18. I guess we're coming close on year 18. So we started as a lighting company, but we've since evolved into what we call lighting and lifestyle. So other things for the home beyond lighting. Yeah, there's definitely more than doorknobs. The lighting, yeah, I guess is probably the area. Maybe if, if people have heard of Schoolhouse, they would know you for. Doorknobs, though, I went to school for industrial design. And I always thought that a doorknob was a really interesting thing to design because it's something that nobody really thinks about unless you're a nerd um, like like me. <laughs> but you're touching doorknobs all the time. You're using a doorknob all the time. And I think a lot of the products that you sell and make are at that intersection of like things that kind of are around you that you're using. And that I guess I kind of set myself up for one of those like wild goose chases because I always wanted to design a doorknob. So now I was like, I'm never gonna have time to design a doorknob. So I'm going to need to find one that matches like what I would have done. <laughs> and that can be like one of those processes where you're now looking for doorknobs for the next five years. I love it. I love it. Yeah. You think like we think, I mean, repetition, the number of times you touch something, hardware is near the top of that list. So we, we obsess those details for you so that you don't have to. Uh, you only think about a doorknob if it's bad. If you touch it and it's kind of janky and not uh, doesn't feel solid, you might notice it. Otherwise, you know, we want you to not notice it, but feel good about it. That's interesting. So number of touches, is that something that you think about in the design process? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think details matter to us a lot. So hardware, you think how many times you open and close a door or your kitchen cabinets. You want that to be a, a delightful experience. Same with on our lighting, the knobs to turn them on and off, you know, the, the knurled details on a little uh, on a little knob or on a pull chain. Those are really important. And can you describe a little bit about how much is manufactured in-house? What are some of the processes that you use there in terms of manufacturing processes? And, and then what, you know, what proportion is products or, or objects that you're sourcing? So about 85% of our products are exclusive to us. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're making all of those in the building, but the vast majority of them we're touching in some way. So we have a global supply chain. We get our components from all over the world. Um, although about 80% of what we make is domestically manufactured. And of that, a good chunk is manufactured in our factory. So all of our lighting, which is about 60% of our business, is done here in-house at Schoolhouse. We also make some furniture in the factory. Uh, we have sewing capabilities and some of the hardware comes through our factory as well. And so when it comes to the lighting, for example, are you, is it mostly assembly or are you actually like 
casting pieces or milling pieces or anything like that? It's mostly assembly. So yeah, we have a lot of sources, mostly domestic, but again, global supply chain for a lot of our processes. So glass blowing, metal spinning, stamping, casting, uh, that's that's coming to us in component form from elsewhere. And that that's happening in Portland? Yes. So talk a little bit about the kind of how you how you connect the design process to the manufacturing process. Because so for example, like these knobs you're describing, are you sourcing the knobs and then kind of like putting them together with other components? Or how does the design and the sourcing interact with each other? Well, let's talk lighting. So um, in lighting, as an example, you know, one of our competitive advantages is that we're all under the same roof. We're all in one building. So our design team sits side by side with our operations factory team, uh, including sourcing of components, et cetera. So, you know, we start with a concept and from the very early days of design, our designers are our lockstep with the team that's going to be assembling, you know, and bringing this product to market. We have an NPI team, a new product introduction team, which acts as the liaison between design and manufacturing to make sure that we're making really thoughtful decisions from the earliest days of design that account for the fact that, hey, we're also going to be the ones to make this. So we think about construction, materials, processes, assembly, you know, scalability, sourcing, scalability of our sourcing, etc. I saw that you hired uh, a new lighting designer recently. What what are they up to? What are they going to be doing? We did. Yeah. I mean, lighting is our, you know, that's in our DNA and it's our bread and butter and it's really important to us. So uh, they are joining a team uh, to continue our lighting legacy and take us into the future. You mentioned legacy you also mentioned that at the beginning in your description of schoolhouse the word heirloom and i wonder if you can define that for us how do you think about that i think about heirlooms every day as does as do most people on our team uh it's it's within our mission Uh, we talk about heirlooms you know everything that we do uh we want it to be an heirloom in some way that's one of our key filters for products is it heirloom quality does it have heirloom potential uh, I think about heirlooms as objects that will create future nostalgia. <laughs> so you'll look back and think about those products. I think a lot about memories, memories at home. You know, we talked earlier about the number of times you've touched something or that that knurled detail on a pull chain of a light. Um, we all have memories like that. You know, maybe it's from your grandma's house or from, you know, where you grew up. Objects in a home that you interact with on the regular triggers memories and triggers the senses, all of the senses, touch, smell, look, you know, how it makes you feel. So we're thinking about all of that. But I think heirloom fundamentally ties to quality as well. Something worth owning now is worth owning forever. So is it manufactured in a way that that's going to be possible? I think timelessness is part of being an heirloom. So, you know, we want something that resonates right now, but also will be relevant into the future. And that's, that's a lot to sign up for. It's a, it's a, major filter in our process. And it's not one that's easy to uh, qualify for. I want to really dig into this because I feel like the concept of heirloom is in some ways going away in a lot of ways. I mean, I think that nowadays, because it's easier than ever to manufacture something, the price of so many of the goods, whether you would say they're (laughs) high quality or not, has come down and it's more affordable and accessible for anyone to to buy some 
whether it's clothing or furniture or, you know, home goods in general, there's th- that kind of price point and the fashions that come with kind of changing styles over over the decades, I think just has made it so much easier for each subsequent generation to be kind of taking more agency over the objects that they surround themselves with. Whereas maybe 100 years ago or 150 years ago, that wasn't the case. And if you inherited a great thing that was still perfectly functional and very useful and looked great, you would keep using it. Just on a societal level, what's going on with heirloom in your mind? Yeah, I think that's true. I'd like to see that change. And I think if anything's going to change it, maybe it's 2020 where people are, you know, recalibrating and taking inventory about what's important. Um, For us, you know, you've probably seen that triangle of what is it like time, money, quality, (laughs) you know, you can, you can maybe pick two or um, for us, we will always pick quality. We'll wait for it. We'll pay for it, but we will always pick quality. We're uncompromising there. And I think that's the key to heirlooms. Also just authenticity in materials, truth in materials and in construction. So you know, I don't want a blanket that looks like it's been woven. I want it to be woven. <laughs> I don't want it printed with a plaid. You know, I want it mm. to truly be woven. Um, so we're paying attention to all of those little details because, you know, those matter. And those are the things that are going to stand up over time. I'm definitely seeing more people thinking about, there's a there's a phrase I've seen around the web, like own it for life, for example, mm-hmm. as a concept, um, something that you feel like, you know, you're making an investment as a as a consumer, as a person to purchasing something that is going to last because so many things around us, whether it's for sustainability reasons or just just the fact that it kind of sucks to have to like replace a thing that you just bought because it broke within a year. Um, and we've had a few discussions on this podcast about the concept of cost per wear, which is a similar idea in, in the fashion world, like how much if you're going to wear a pair of shoes, how, how many times can you wear it before it breaks down? And how does that affect how much you're willing to pay for something? Have you seen that kind of evolution at all in, in how people think on the consumer side? Yeah, I mean, we're lucky because we have customers that have those values. You, you would have to have those values to shop at schoolhouse, frankly. I mean, I, I, I want to think people come, you know, because it looks cool or, you know, it is cool, but it's more than just being cool. We're asking you to put down a good amount of money because you're, it's a thoughtful purchase. And we, as we're making these products, we're thinking to ourselves, if, if this is worth somebody own, if it's worth it to somebody to own this now, it should last forever. And forever is maybe uh, an ambitious goal, but that's that's what an heirloom is. It should be able to be passed down over time. Yeah, I I like having that from a design standpoint. As a designer myself, it's either something that I either want it to last for a really long time or I want it to last for as little time as possible. And a lot of stuff that's in the middle is just poor quality. Like you can design something to be to last as as little as possible and that's where, you know, biodegradable materials and things like that come into the picture. But if you're going to create a product that hopefully doesn't end up in a landfill, it needs to stand the test of time just sort of physically. But then also, like you said, in the timelessness of the design, I mean, even though you've been <laughs> around for now 18 years, 
that's like a generational concept. Like you would have to have, I don't know if if the people who are purchasing your products are now passing them on themselves or if that's still some ways away. But how how successful are you at creating products that people want to pass on or people want to inherit? You know, I, I guess time will tell. Like you said, 18 years is not maybe long enough to gauge success there, but I'd say we're on track. You know, we we're able to reimagine the familiar. So we are putting a, a modern a modern spin on it. But that concept of timelessness and just memories comes up over and over again in our consumer insights. You know, this blanket reminds me of my grandma's house or this, you know, this light reminds me of, you know, my old school. Or if it's triggering some kind of an emotional response, I do think that's what cements it into its heirloom potential. And we are definitely doing that for people. And from an industrial design standpoint, how do you think about timelessness? How do you think about avoiding something that might be like purely fashionable and designing something that will look good for a long time? Well, I guess a couple of thoughts there. I'm so I, I love fashion, uh, but I'm so glad not to be working in it because we don't have the you know the schedules of like spring, fall, summer, you know, needing a a fresh collection every time. We do happen to launch a few times a year just to give us a rhythm, but it's not like we're launching something and then it goes away by the next year. If we, if we launch something into our assortment, the intent is that it would stay, uh, you know, for a very, very long time, if not forever. We have several icon products that have just been with us forever and they will be with us forever. And every time we launch a product, it's our hope that it becomes, you know, iconic schoolhouse. Uh, We don't always get that right, but we certainly are trying. And so I think that's a piece of it. Once we launch it, it's going to stay in the line for a very long time, multiple years, if not decades. Um, So that's very freeing. But also another good test of, is this timeless? And of course, we don't have till the end of time to to test that case. But what we do have is right now, uh, you know, lots of people have lots of different styles. So one thing that I love to see, and we see it all the time in our user generated content, when people, you know, post about us with our products is the same light or the same, uh, coverlet or the same hardware can look so at home in so many different styles, so many different households, so many different architecture types, Um, And seeing that, I think, is a true validation of what we're trying to do. We're not trying to be everything to everybody. We're trying to be something special uh, for people that want it. And the way that you make it, you know, special is to obviously have the quality standards that we have, but then have it fit in and look at home in so many different places and seeing people that are able to adopt our products into their homes and have our products look so at home is really rewarding. And I think that, you know, hopefully that's a good indicator of will it, will it stand the test of time? Well, it's certainly standing the test of a lot of different aesthetics all at once and, and working so well. It's a, it's a really fascinating time that we're in right now from that perspective, because it feels like in the 20th century was you know, the century of mass production and and every decade in the 20th century, there was a new design language that was developed, you know, from Art Deco, like mid-century, post-modern, like you had all of these kind of iconic design languages that were developed. And now 
it's not that we've like tr- done everything, <laughs> like every way that a mug could be designed or a doorknob. I don't think everything's been tried, but a lot of the low hanging fruit has been picked off and you have these, we have a selection to pick from now. And so when I look at your website and your catalog, it's, you know, there, there's things that remind me of 20s design and there's mid-century and there's things that look a little bit postmodern. And it's just kind of, I wonder if there's ever going to be a time again where things get more like back to how they were in the 20th century, like with these like distinct periods of time, or we're just kind of in a more curatorial era now. And we're just picking from the, each person gets to pick from whatever their favorite things are. I hope it's a little bit of both. I mean, I'm, I'm of the school of thought that if you, if you love something, you can make it work for you. The mix beats the match for me all the time. But if you're more of a purist, I think we have something, you know, for that as well. And some of our customers certainly are within our lighting and our hardware for that matter. Um, you know, we do have clear style points internally that we talk about. There's four, there's heritage, there's mid-century modern, there's utilitarian, and there's new modern. And so we do, we are thinking about those as we design things, but we're not super strict about how we style them or how we merchandise them because it's such a personal thing. And who are we to say what works or doesn't work? If it, Again, if you love something, it's going to work for you. When you think as a company about the timescale that you're operating on, what is your horizon? What, what is like, what feels like a long time to you? For the business, you mean? Yeah, for the business, just kind of strategy-wise or how you're thinking about big decisions. Well, you know, we're in year 18 and I still, it feels like startup mode every single day. And I want these to be the early days. These are the very early days. We're still figuring it out. Uh, I think we have a really long runway ahead of us, which is exciting. I think this brand is full of potential and I'm excited to be part of that ride for as long as I can be. Yeah, I think we're just getting started. This brand wasn't started. It wasn't started with an end game in mind. It wasn't like, let's build it and sell it, or let's get a lot of VC money and see what we can do, or let's open as many stores as we can. It's been very methodical, very gradual. I guess methodical is a generous word. I wouldn't, let me, let me take that one back. It's been, it's been organic. If anything, you know, it's been uh, developing over time, evolving over time. The methodical part of it is that we're committed to just growing in our own way. We've maintained control. We've been methodical about that. You know, we haven't taken on investors and that's been a choice so that we can be in control and be in the driver's seat and take it where we want to go at the pace that we can. We're not in a rush. We're not in a hurry. And and that for me is refreshing. There was an episode of uh, the podcast that we did a few weeks back with Emily Singer. I think the title was uh, Giving Your Brand a Soul. <laughs> in any case, you reached out to me about it. And I thought it'd be, somehow it had struck a chord with you. What was it in, in there? It feels like there's a parallel between that and what you were just saying. Absolutely. I loved that episode. Uh, Emily is such a thought leader and it was really cool to hear her articulate her thoughts on all of those topics, including that uh, Bloomberg article, I think, which maybe triggered your conversation with Emily. The article was all about uh, blands, (laughs) um, which I thought was creative. That for me really struck a chord in that I didn't have all the words that Emily had to describe what we were trying to do and your conversation with her and, and you contributed a lot to that as well. Just it felt validating and refreshing to know that, you know, hey, what we're doing uh, can be seen, it can be appreciated. And for me, it's similar to decorating a house, which obviously is an important thing for me in my world. 
Uh, there's a lot of parallels. I think some people move into a new home and they're just eager to feel settled right away. And so they run it, you know, to the nearest, whatever the store is and, uh, you know, buy everything for their house and decorate their house. And there it is where other people realize that, you know, to get that right and to have your home really be a mirror of who you are and what you value and reflect all of those things. It just takes time. It's layered over time. It's like a nice patina and it, it can't come together really quickly. And that journey is, is part of what makes it special. And it's part of what makes people feel, you know, uh, interested when they come into your home. I love things that are not boring and to achieve that, you know, that just takes time. Building this brand is very similar to that. It's layered over time. How would you describe the soul of Schoolhouse? How would I describe the soul? I mean, it's it's rooted in our values. I think we're, we're a product company fundamentally, but our products definitely don't define us. I think our products are physical evidence of what we believe in. They're the tangible proof of our values. So you know, we value family. We value U.S. manufacturing. We, we value revitalization. We're trying to reimagine the familiar. We think about doing less better. All of those things, I would hope that you could pick up one of our products. And if you know a little bit about about us and you're holding that product, that that's all connected. Um, why, this might sound like a stupid question, but why is it important that things are made in America? Uh, it's not a stupid question. I mean, gosh, not a lot of people are making things in America. So, uh, you know, it's important to us for a few reasons. Selfishly, uh, you know, I alluded to the fact we like to have control. And what better way to have control than to have the factory right here with us? And in doing that, not only do you get control, but you're able to provide a, a better customer experience because especially today, 2020 with the pandemic and everything else, there's so much out of our control but being able to control what we can has been a, an advantage for us as a business. Um, you know, our marketing team is lockstep with our, our actual inventory situation so that they're marketing things that we can sell. We have transparent communications that, you know, we're capable of having internally and with our customers about the actual status of their order. We're, you know, well over 90% on time with our deliveries this year, 2020, middle of a pandemic, and we're still able to deliver over 90% of the time on time. Um, so all of those are things that you couldn't do if the supply chain was not within your control. That said, I also think jobs are, you know, very important and the skills that are required to do these jobs are very important that the country has been built on skills like this. And for us, it's important to continue that tradition and uh, to have meaningful manufacturing and design jobs domestically. And do you think just kind of on a, on a, U.S. level or what you're seeing in the world? Like we've definitely been a time where a lot of people are questioning globalism and trying to figure out what can we do in the U.S. Do you think that's a good thing or how do you kind of relate those two, two forces? Like do you hear other entrepreneurs or, or friends of yours who are trying to figure out how to bring things more into being U.S. made or designed here or something like that? Um, I don't know what others, how others would answer that question. I think the way of the future is that we are all connected. We, you know, we are all part of this global economy and that's a good thing. We should be at schoolhouse. We're chasing quality. So 
there are some things that we don't get domestically because the quality is better elsewhere or the reliability or the scalability. So a lot of our beautiful linens are coming from Portugal. Uh, we just launched our holiday collection and we have beautiful wooden these little smoker guys that are so cute. They're incense burners and those come from Germany and that's where wood carved uh, holiday ornaments come from. Um, and so, you know, we go to the source to get the highest quality for that and to get the authenticity of that. And there are things that we do better here in our own factory, but to do that, we rely very much on a global supply chain. And if that's done well, if there's strong relationships and if we're going to visit our suppliers and we're looking them in the eye and we're touring their factories and we're checking in with them on the regular, you know, that's really good business. And I think that the way of the future would be that it's all kind of braided together in a way that's appropriate for whatever it is you're trying to do. In our case, we're trying to nail the customer experience, keep quality really high and focus on making the next generation of heirlooms. And to do that, we absolutely tap into all corners of the globe, but we do a lot right here domestically. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's a really interesting decision to make intentionally. And and if you were advising someone who was starting a new company and wanting to have this kind of long-term horizon, but you know, they've been doing this now for six months or a year or two years, like, how do I go about kind of inventing that process within my company, as opposed to, it's always going to be probably easier to say like, oh, let's go on Alibaba or something and see what I can find in China or what I can, you know, can I work with a company there? It, it feels like that's almost the default. So how do you build that culture internally? To, to I mean, you've been, you kind of entered this company with, with that kind of established, but if you were starting it from scratch, how would you do it? Yeah, I think I would do it similar. I mean, so much of it is out of necessity. From the beginning, we've been pretty high mix, low volume. So I guess if we were making one light and it was the schoolhouse light and we were going to make you know, millions of those lights, maybe you'd approach it differently. But this is not that kind of a brand. We have a lot of products. None of them are crazy high volume. So, you know, we having that flexibility is is necessity for what we're doing um, the flexibility to run high mix low volume through our factory and other you know like-minded factories around the world high mix low volume is a scenario that a lot of people are trying to optimize to avoid um why does it work for you in, in from your point of view well people are probably trying to avoid it uh because you know they might measure success by how fast can I grow? And that's just not how we measure success potentially. So we're very clear about how we measure success and what our success drivers are. And for us, there's four drivers of success. Employee engagement is our number one. Customer experience is number two. Radical simplicity is number three. And deliberate financials is number four. For us, when we think about what does success look like or what is driving our success, that's the order that we think about. And so employee engagement being our number one, we know we want people to feel connected to our mission, which is to make heirlooms. We want people to know how what they're doing is contributing to that mission at all levels of the business. And we talk about that a lot. And then customer experience, obviously, we want we want to delight our customers. We want to be able to commit on what we're going to do and do what we say. We want them to like what we're creating. We want them to come back. We want them to be, you know, brand advocates for us and use us over and over again for their 
lighting and lifestyle needs. Radical simplicity is an interesting one. That's number three. Um, We've been working on that the last few years. This is a very complex business, but sometimes it's more complex than it needs to be. So we're really looking for opportunities to simplify and then deliberate financials. We don't want surprises. We want to know what's happening. We want to stay tuned into it. We want to take risks together. We want to be mindful of where we're headed in terms of our financial results. And we want to um, you know, make a plan to get there and deliver on that plan every time we have to. That's how we keep going. How do you reconcile the idea of radical simplicity with the idea of high mix, low volume? Is that because <laughs> radical simplicity is the third one down and the second one is about what customers want and they want high mix, low volume? They want a lot of options? Or how do you figure out? Because it seems like a more radically simple would be to have fewer different light designs or something like that. Well, I guess it's all it's all relative. I mean, when you look at how many lights or how many products we have compared to maybe other companies in our space, we are radically simple. Hmm. It's a very curated, tight assortment. So, you know, earlier we talked about our style points. So, you know, whether it's mid-century or utilitarian or the new modern or the heritage within that, mm-hmm. you're not you're not going to find multiple, we're not going to compete with ourselves within that. So if it's a sconce, if it's a chandelier, if it's a lamp, you're probably going to find one or two in each of those categories, right? not five or six or 10. That makes sense. In doing that, I think that is radically simple. I think it exudes confidence if we have, you know, the light in each of those categories, maybe, maybe organized by price point or by finish, you know, color, but you're not going to find 10 brass chandeliers that are all mid-century. You're not going to find that at Schoolhouse. We're going to have one or two. So this is where I'm like stepping into an area that I don't know anything about. But I know that Wayfair has been like a really like big deal in kind of your world. From my perspective, I personally don't use it very much, which is why I don't know what I'm talking about here. But it does seem kind of like pushing that consumerization or fashionization of what furniture and home can be like <laughs> i'm trying to think like what's the opposite of what you're doing is it is it that yeah i think that's pretty far at the other end of the spectrum for sure and no doubt there's a there's a place for that because people sure are uh, loving what they're doing but um you know again we're not trying to be everything to everybody so the people that value that that's probably not our consumer our consumer just values things differently and shops differently than that there's probably room for both. But I think we're very, again, back to radical simplicity that extends to, you know, knowing who our customer is and knowing who our customer is not and staying focused on that. Something you shared with me was the schoolhouse ground rules, which I'm reading this as kind of like the, I guess, values. I don't know if it's values. What, how do you describe these ground rules? There's work smart, go for it, and be cool. <laughs> and these are kind of, I guess, the the practical like structure fa- for how you want your team to work. Yeah, exactly. It's how we engage with one another to get things done. And it's a, you know, I guess my leadership style, and, and maybe you're catching on to this even through this conversation, but I'm big on frameworks and filters, ground rules, anything that can sort of amplify the vision or amplify the strategy and, you know, something that you can communicate really clearly and that people can 
commit to that can empower and distribute um, the work and the decision-making down into the depths of the organization, because only then can you really amplify what you're trying to get across. So in this case, the ground rules for how we engage with one another, yeah, work smart, be cool, go for it. Uh, people are pretty familiar with these at Schoolhouse. And it's if you see it, it's you know a Venn diagram of circles. And the real goal is to meet in the middle of that circle every time. So Within Work Smart, we obviously need to be thinking about we're running a business. We need to spend our money wisely. We need to think about the margin. We need to be clear about you know, where we're going and why we're going there. Start with why. Understand what success looks like. Um, and then details like take notes in meetings, You know, clearly define problems. All of those kinds of things are working smart. Be cool would be, uh, it's nothing to do with actually being cool because I'm actually not very cool, but just be kind, be nice to each other, have fun at work, um, take vacations, assume positive intent, start with yes, help set other people up for success, have empathy, and then go for it is where we really need to push ourselves. You know, think big, dream big, um, be nimble, pursue the vision, get after it. Uh, and, and the goal for all of us is to do all those things simultaneously, but never go too far into any one of those circles. And often I find in meetings or in conversations, we're pulling each other back to the center. So, you know, if you get too far in any one direction, we're not actually going to be uh, solutions oriented or get, you know, get where we need to be. Whereas if you stay near the middle of that, we can move forward together. But this, the ground rules is a framework for engagement at Schoolhouse. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to share that in the show notes so people can look at what that uh, Venn diagram looks like. What led you to this framework? Like, what were the problems that you were seeing internally and how did you develop this framework? Like a lot of things at Schoolhouse, I guess it, it, it's evolved over time with input from the team. You know, maybe without even knowing it, there probably were some problems to solve. I think the teams were pretty siloed at one point and there was a need for them to interact more cross-functionally that's the only way you know to get things done together is to go together so uh, teams that hadn't previously maybe worked together needed needed a bit of a framework for how we were going to do that how we were going to engage and it's just an opportunity to talk about our values and what you know what we want to get out of work and what we want to get out of the business and how can we chase our potential together? You, you need a flying formation. So this is, this is helping to draft what that could look like. And, you know, with its high adoption rate, I think that schoolhouse today is, is a very, it's a fun place to work. It's a respectful place to work. Uh, and we are a high achieving team. We're getting a lot done. So there's, you know, we're working smart, we're being cool and we're going for it every single day. You make it sound easy, but I think that even those like, words that you use are hard to come up with um like work smart be cool go for it i think <laughs> it's very powerful when internally everyone has those things to refer back to and have a shared language to talk about you know are we working smart right now and that's the part that i that i think it can be challenging is like just finding the the words that feel just right for the culture that you're trying to create yeah, I, I guess it is hard to pull that off, um, but having it be adopted is so powerful, as you're saying, and it's it, it couldn't be simpler. And at Schoolhouse, we have such a diverse team. Um, being a vertically integrated business all under one roof, we have 
you know, warehouse staff, people doing shipping and receiving, assembly, uh, you know, we have paint booths, we have all kinds of jobs. Uh, and of course, we also have design, uh, design jobs, we have HR, IT, accounting, all the things of a business, right? Um, so common language and, and actually within our team, I think there's 15 or 20 languages spoken. So we have a lot of diversity in terms of ethnicity. Um, so we try to make everything visual and everything pretty simple uh, so that at the very tip top, including ownership and all the way through, you know, we can speak the same language confidently and be on the same page. There's an expression. I don't know. I think it's from Africa, maybe. But if, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think I'm always thinking about that. This brand is going really far. And to do that, we have to stay on the same team. We are one team. And being mindful of that, offering benefits that are equal for all and uh, sharing the strategic plan in a way that's digestible by all is the only way to move the whole team together. And we have to stick together. You know, it's supply and demand all on one team. If I was just generating demand, this would be a much easier job, but I'm not. We also have to supply. So it's so critical that the team is on one page. So when you joined Schoolhouse, the company had already existed for over a decade. And what was your kind of like coming into the company? First of all, what attracted you to it, but then also kind of becoming president, what was your approach to developing kind of like confidence from the rest of the team and, and developing your leadership style? Um, I mean, I guess maybe that happened over time. I came to Schoolhouse as the director of product and I'm always clear about who I am and why I'm here. And I always ask that of the team too, like, who are you and why are you here? <laughs> and here's who I am and here's why I'm here. And as a brand, who are we and why are why do we exist as a brand? So I think I always start everything that way. And uh, I, coming into Schoolhouse, was very clear about who I was and why I was there. Uh, Schoolhouse, for me, was the perfect opportunity. Coming in as the director of product, I had done about 15 years at that time of business consulting. So I'd seen a lot of different businesses, uh, some of them product companies, some of them not. And I had studied mechanical engineering and also studio art. And I've always had this passion for home and what home means, you know, the concept of home as a place, but also just as a feeling. And so to have, you know, that passion for home overlap with what I had studied and overlap with all these years of business consulting experience uh, to get this opportunity to come to Schoolhouse and run the product team was this golden opportunity. So I was really clear about um, how excited I was to be there. And, you know, I thought that my years of business consulting uh, could really apply. Uh, I saw a business that that needed what I had to offer in a, in a space, in an industry that I'm super passionate about. Um, I mean, this is the job that I would want to have if I didn't have to have a job. And uh, I felt that way coming in as a director of product. Now, I got in as a director of product and pretty quickly realized the product team itself was very talented. You know, they probably just needed some some pep talks and some coaching, but they didn't need me in that role. There was somebody pretty well positioned that could take over that role. And what the business really needed from me, which I was able to take on pretty quickly, was to unite the business. And that started with uniting the customer-facing aspects of the business. So brand, product, marketing, sales, digital, our website, et cetera. Uh, after being the, the director of product for a short time, I took over a bigger job where I was 
um, the VP overseeing all of those functions. And that's where this framework, the Work Smart, Be Cool, Go For It actually originated was uniting those teams so that all the customer facing teams were all part of the same framework and engaging together in a very specific way. I wasn't in that spot for very long either because it really became clear that, well, that's only going to be successful if the business uh, in its entirety is on the same team. So we really needed to shift to this one team mentality and connect everybody into that framework and and have everybody um, engaging with each other in that way and connect everybody to the strategic plan. And so over the past few years, I've had you know such a dream opportunity to get to do that as president. One of the things that you had mentioned to me resonated from the episode we did with Emily Singer uh, was we were talking a little bit about like you don't have to be the founder to contribute to the world. Like you, you can create, you can be part of a company that already exists. Maybe it's it's better sometimes to go add to something that already exists and make that thing better rather than kind of like fragment and go off and do your own thing. I think it's an interesting path that you've taken that is very much in that way, like building on top of something that was already uh, pretty great and making it even better. And I wonder, in a weird way, that's not the path that is often celebrated. And I, I wonder how you think about that when you, if you were advising someone who was trying to figure out, should I start my own company or should I go join one that already exists? Yeah, I loved I loved that that came up during that podcast, and it doesn't come up very often. Uh, I'm obviously thinking about that a lot. I'm very tuned into that, and I'm very you know I've consciously taken that path for myself. I'm not looking to be famous or become a brand myself in any way. I'm not interested in that, and I also don't think of myself as somebody that works for Schoolhouse, and I, I don't want anyone at Schoolhouse to think they work at Schoolhouse. I think of myself as part of Schoolhouse and I want everybody that works here to feel like I'm part of Schoolhouse. Um, And that's a subtle difference, but it's very, you know, it is a huge difference. Nobody's working for Schoolhouse. We are all part of it. We're making it every single day. And, you know, it takes a special person to start a company. It takes a lot of courage and appetite for risk. And, you know, those are just things that not everybody has, but it also takes a special group uh, to come and work for a brand and make it better. And in reality, most of us are going to be, you know, that second type of person (laughs) that go work for somebody else or for something else. And that should also be very celebrated because that's how most of us spend our time, spend our days. And it's super meaningful work uh, if you make it that way and if you approach it that way. And yeah, it's it's not all about the founder at Schoolhouse. And our founder would admit that uh, very openly. You know, he always says it's the work of many and it, it truly, truly is. So it's not about me. It's not about him. Um, it's about all of us every day. Yeah, I really like what you said about being part of Schoolhouse. <laughs> I think of the same thing for us at Lumi, like even though me and my co-founder Jesse, we started it. I say this to people at Lumi, but I don't know if they always take me up on it, which is just that I I want to be part of a company that we're building together. It's a thing now. And personally, as a, as a co-founder in the business, my part of it is becoming smaller and smaller every day because we're hiring and the number of decisions, maybe in the early days, the number of decisions that I made relative to anyone else was higher, but it's it's going down all the time and I'm actually excited about that. And I think that that's something where, going back to your concept of like employee engagement, how do you find a way to get people to really 
buy into that and actually get excited to contribute and feel agency over the creation of this like group entity. Yeah. I, um, I love that for you at Lumi and I feel the same. Um, I, like I said, I think I ask everybody, who are you and why are you here? And it's so great to hear, you know, why people are at schoolhouse. And I often ask why, why are you here and why do you stay? Um, we have crazy, uh, loyal, they're not crazy. They're crazy loyal. Um, we call them true believers. So employees that are just all in, and it's so refreshing. Our average tenure at Schoolhouse is well over four years. Our leadership team is close to six years average. And I think over 40%, well, I know over 40% of, of our employees have been there greater than five years. What do they say when you, answer, when you ask them that question? Why are you here? Why do you stay? Well, that's what's interesting. Everybody's different. You know, everybody's reason is different. And um, in some way, I'm always kind of looking to hear that something about our mission resonates for them. And I always do find that in their answer. Um, but, you know, it's it's different for everybody. Maybe it's a lifestyle choice or maybe it's passion for the industry or maybe it's they love problem solving or maybe they love getting to build a brand. They love working with their hands. They love that they get to wear a lot of different hats. You know, everybody has a different thing that motivates them and understanding that is is super important as the leader and as teammates to each other so that, you know, when you know what your, what your teammates value, you can make sure that, you know, you're, you're helping to uh, help them be successful because everybody defines success differently. Um, and this is, you know, this is a business that is owned by a family, but uh, as a business, we're not a family, we're a team. And that's very different too. So I think being mindful of that, I lead from a place of I'm leading a team. Uh, I think families are are very lovable and very important, but so are teams and they're different. And at work, it's a team. You mentioned earlier, um, not like intentionally not taking on VC um, investors. How do you balance, you know, the kind of slow approach to building the company? And I mean that in a positive way. Um, they are intentional kind of pacing yourself, trying to figure out how, what, you know, how to build it, um, over time and the stamina that's required to do that kind of every day versus, and maybe versus is not the right word, but the, the kind of like being ambitious, thinking big, getting really fired up about what is the next big thing or what's going to take you to the next level. How do you find the right way to get people to do both? Because there's sort of a little bit intention. You, you, you can, expend your energy in a very kind of stable and consistent way for a long time, or you can (laughs) try to put a ton of energy behind one big thing and like hope that that's going to be a game changer. It's hard to do both really well from what I can tell in general. Yeah, I think it's just all a matter of scale, you know? So we, yes, we are self-funded, but we make big investments into ourselves. And, you know, so we get kind of far out into that where, you know, we're going for it, we're going for it, we're making a key decision, but we just have to be really clear about what those priorities are. And I guess that's what the framework that we're, uh, the construct of this business being self-funded forces us to, you know, have those constraints, which in turn forces us to be crystal clear about our priorities. So right now, a big priority is our web redesign and you know, there's, there's 20 big projects we could have done, but we need to get really clear about, but what is the priority and then put, uh, all hands on deck to push that one over the finish line before we pick our next priority. Uh, you can't, you can't do it all at once for a lot of reasons, including, uh, the financial model that we're working with in. 
What are your goals for this next big version of your website? Uh, it's all about user experience. So we're just trying to streamline. We're really leaning into our uh, radical simplicity approach. So the products that we sell, a lot of them are made to order. And we want that to be a really clean user experience for our customers so that what could be confusing is not confusing to them. We want it to be uh, very intuitive and we want to make sure that the customers get what they want and get it efficiently. And to do all of that without losing you know, the soul of this brand and the beautiful images and the inspiring content that also populates our website, uh, we just want it to be highly functional and highly user-friendly and to convert nicely for us. It's at this moment with COVID, it's our only channel. So our stores are closed. Um, I guess, you know, we still have a call center and for our trade business, our commercial business, the call center is still a very important part, but by and large, the web is, is our biggest channel, always has been, always will be. And so uh, what better place to invest our energy at this moment? Do you know like roughly when it'll come out, when the new website will be live? Uh, 2021, uh, probably Q, Q2, Q3. And, you know, if we do it right, it's not going to be a shocking change for our customers. It's We're not we're not rebranding. The look and feel will stay, uh, you know, very true to who we are. We're, you know, we've, we've worked hard to refine that. And this will just be the next evolution of the user experience. Well, in the meantime, you've got all kinds of uh, exciting things for the holidays. Schoolhouse.com is your website. Anything you want to point people to if they're curious to learn more about the company or your products or anything like that? Uh, I think even the current version of the website does a nice job. There's an about us section if you want to learn more about the company. And again, our products, they really speak for themselves. So follow your heart on the website. It's designed, you know, for you to do that. What, what speaks to you? Instagram is a huge channel for us as well. That's probably the best place to get um, you know, a daily dose of who we are and what we're all about and what, what's exciting us. And yes, our holiday assortment just dropped this week. So um, every year we, we launch a limited uh, edition of these very coveted stockings and they always sell out. So that's always fun to watch, watch that happen each year. It's beautiful stuff. Yeah, I'm looking at your Instagram right now. I'm like, oh, I should be following this account. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you should. Yeah, you should. <laughs> wow, you got 450,000 followers on there. So I guess I'm late to the party. Well, welcome to the party. You're never late. It's, it's, it's just getting started. Awesome. Well, it's been amazing to talk to you, Sarah. Thank you so much and uh, good luck. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.